The title of this evening's talk is Spiritual Urgency, Sambhaga. Why do we practice? Why do you practice? What are the seeds that bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this one? So, beginning this evening with a few questions, some of which have probably visited your mind and heart. These questions that humans have felt and have asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history. These murmurings of the heart the deep questionings and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death? Its significance, its meaning. Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What is it that I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world, in this changing country, with all of the challenges within me and all around me, right here and now, in this very life. What is it that brings me to practice? And again, why am I here, in this retreat, right now? Our practice isn't about getting caught, caught up, or in mulling or stewing over these questions. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and as an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. So, as I've already said, this talk, this evening's talk is about the urgency, spiritual urgency, the urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is samvega, which is most often translated uh, into English as spiritual urgency. But actually it's a term that is somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of uh, different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force or the energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. The classical text goes on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself. 
by what should move one, followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So, samvega is the urgency to practice, an urgency to awaken. It's important to note at this point, spiritual urgency is an energy that's not at all fraught with any tense or frantic or obsessive quality. But rather it's a quality of mind, a quality of heart that very often comes out of some degree of understanding of the natural laws, of the the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. So let's take a look at this for a few moments. For some of you, Samvega may have been sensed or maybe first felt as the endlessness of the round and round and round of daily life. Others of you have <clears throat> may have felt a certain uh, urgency through some degree of the perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, in sensing, seeing, and knowing mental and physical phenomena continuously arising and disappearing in its gross and maybe also in it's some of its subtler forms and the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Also the death of someone close to us in our life can certainly move the heart and the mind towards the urgency to practice and to awaken. And for some of you, this sense of urgency, samvega, might be experienced through feeling the enormity and maybe even the subtleties of the physical and mental hardships and challenges in life. The suffering from this particular perspective, in general, in the big picture, and maybe also specifically through the various permutations of the hardships and challenges in your own life. For some, the urgency to practice and the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long, accustomed, or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or very directly experiencing bias or judgment and prejudice in relationship to race or culture or economic circumstances or gender or age or sexual preference. Along with any of these experiences and the accompanying mental pain, you may also have experienced 
a vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When Samvega first stirs us, it might be an emotional state, an emotional state that is somewhat difficult or maybe disturbing until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. One of the wonderful attributes of the stirring energy of Samvega is that it itself has the power to move us in a clear and healthy way towards finding a wholesome direction to, for us to connect to. An important point to recognize and to acknowledge is that continuing all along the way of our practice, Samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as an experience of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way, or happenings that I'm simply an observer of, such as the great misunderstandings and confusions that are currently occurring in this world. And the often jarring and often violent reactions that are perpetrated from all sides because of this. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response, both within our formal meditation practice as well as outside of our formal practice times. And for me, It's the movement of my heart, a response to let go deeper into my practice. It's really this flavor of Samvega that stirs and moves me again and again towards letting go, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When some vega is present, it might sometimes be experienced as an ardency, an inspired heart, an inspired mind, a passion, if you will, for spiritual practice something that I'm sure at least some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, 
very likely what brought you here to this retreat. As a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice moves and inspires me. And I think it's quite safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. And it's one of the very wonderful aspects of all of us, all of us here right now. Yogis and Dhamma teachers. It's one of the wonderful aspects of living in a practice community such as this. Even just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So even more specifically from the perspective of the Dhamma, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us and moving us towards sustaining and deepening our practice. There's a very beautiful account of how Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot uh, through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphorical considering the possibility that these four messengers, these four very common events of life for all of us, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and culture that Siddhartha grew up in, Considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred within him before. To such a degree that he was urgently moved urgently moved to leave the riches, the ease, and the comfort of his existence. Urgently moved to search for the true nature of life. He was profoundly touched during those few chariot rides by the overt physical and mental challenges and hardships. The suffering in life that he witnessed 
as he took in these four very common events of life. Siddhartha's story tells us that this young man was inspired inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar, very familiar habits of his life. And isn't it really the same case with us? That most of the time, with the many, many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, that we've reacted. We've reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves in myriad ways by where and how we spend our time. So, for instance, how we react by what we do to the various aspects of our aging bodies. Or maybe we've reacted to these messengers by pretending or even believing that something else is happening. Until somehow, at least one of these messengers touches us so deeply that instead of reacting, we respond. And we respond, in fact, in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth and wisdom. We're somehow stirred at some point to walk a different path than by constantly feeling overrun, overrun with sadness, anguish, or fear, or by being contracted with the feelings of attachment or anger, or confusion in relationship to the natural occurrences of life. Truly, aren't our closest surroundings full of stirring things? Stirring in the sense of samvega, if we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits? The habits that render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive. And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddha's teachings. We may have encountered, many of us in this room certainly, may have encountered times of powerful intellectual, emotional, and spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practices. But at times, for many people, even this impetus can lose its freshness, lose its impelling force, as maybe some of you have experienced. 
So what's the remedy? The remedy for this is to constantly renew the freshness of the teachings and practice by just simply turning to the fullness of life within us and around us. Which, if we really look carefully, it constantly illustrates what the Buddha called the Four Noble Truths in ever new variations, moment by moment. Illustrating the first truth of what suffering is, what it really is, which, very simply put, is the lack of any thoroughly sustaining deep satisfaction in relationship to our expectations and the natural unfolding regarding the round and round and round of daily life. And if we continue to look really carefully into the fullness of life within us and surrounding us, we begin to sense and to see the cause, the origin of this unsatisfactoriness, this dukkha or suffering as it's often translated, which is the second of the Four Noble Truths which again, put very simply, essentially is a clinging relationship to what can't be clung to. And the third truth, the third noble truth, the truth that in fact there is a potential end to this suffering. There's a solution to this predicament. The solution Again, simply put, to not cling, but rather to see things utterly clearly and simply be with them as they are. And then to act or respond to life from this place as it unfolds. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into into effect via the path, the path of practice offered by the Buddha, that each one of you are engaged in walking along now at your own pace, right here, right now, in this very life, in this very retreat. And I'm sure, as some of you, if not all of you, have experienced, and sometimes maybe quite unexpectedly, a degree of understanding of one of these truths can show up. So for instance, with what might be a fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning or clinging and the self-identification that's embedded in each of these 
habitual reactive patterns. Or insight, wisdom might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed or a new sight of some manifestation of poverty or prejudice or a weeping child or in relationship to the distress of someone you regularly have some degree of contact with or maybe in relationship to the unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one or one's own illness one's own bodily discomfort or of course myriad other flavors of our experience with any of these experiences having the power to startle us meaning to promote a reflective response and to stir up a sense of urgency in our resolve to sincerely and deeply practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Through seeing our own experiences of body and mind directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless and impersonal nature of things. Something that is, of course, very available for each of us all the time. So, for instance, a moment, or maybe successive moments, of directly and deeply experiencing and knowing the constantly changing nature of bodily sensations, or mental states, or a moment of knowing that it's all impersonal, it's all anatta, the Pali word for not-self, impersonality, mental and physical phenomena just absolutely naturally arising, changing, and passing according to myriad interconnected conditions. With these moments of sensing, seeing, and knowing, we are often urgently stirred and inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the ending of suffering, or, depending on circumstances, to recommit to our practice. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia. Each of us have many stories, many experiences that 
come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life. And of course, many stories within our life as a whole. Stories that often exhibit this knowing and this manifestation of samvega. And it's often part of what I hear from students during practice interviews. There are uh, a number of wonderful uh, stories and dialogues in the suttas telling of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. This stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arhans, one of the enlightened disciples, or the stirring being done by one of the practicing devas. Devas are beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling sometimes for long lengths of time in very beautiful states, but who aren't yet awakened, who aren't yet uh, completely free from suffering. There's a section of short suttas uh, in the Samyutta Nikaya called The Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach certain bhikkhus, certain monks, who are practicing in those woodland thickets. And I'd like to share a few of these encounters with you. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for a day of practice. But all the while, he just kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. The deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that monk, for that bhikkhu, and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove man the desire for people, then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And the word lust is being used not meaning necessarily just sexual lust, but lust for things, lust for food, lust for various objects and various experiences. And the Deva goes on, you must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of that way of the good. And the Deva's going on talking to the monk. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. Just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, a yogi, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue 
takes place shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death, and his closest attendant and cousin, Ananda, had been strongly encouraged to attain arhanship, to attain full enlightenment before the first Buddhist council was to convene, which uh, was scheduled to begin during the next rains season retreat. So Ananda had gone uh, to the Kosala country and entered into a forest abode to practice meditation. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of anicca, in the law of impermanence. The forest-dwelling deva there, aware that the the upcoming Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda attended it as an arhant, came to provoke and to inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And so this is the sutta. On one occasion, the venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, the venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed Nibbana in your heart, meditate, Gotama. Now, because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had that same family name of Gotama. So the deva said, meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will all this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So I picked this particular dialogue because though, of course, we're not uh, in the same position as Ananda was, um, we're certainly often, often, (laughs) quite caught up, quite seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo, if you will, of various circumstances, both externally and internally, and neglect or maybe even lose our practice and instead go for these things. To me, this little verse quite beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear. Not to neglect what needs to be attended to, of course, but to know when we are seduced unnecessarily and maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhuni was dwelling in Visali in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Visali. 
then that bakuni, lamenting as she heard the clamor of instruments, gongs, and music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. And this is the bakuni speaking. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is there worse off than us? Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for that bhikkhuni, desiring her good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in her, approached her and addressed her in verse. And this is the deva. As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state. A forest dweller, subsisting on alms food with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhuni, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming, as well as potent thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day. The deva, who also inhabited this same woodland thicket, out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him, spoke these verses to this bhikkhu. Because of attending, this is the, the deva speaking, because of attending carelessly, you, sir, are eaten by your thoughts. Having relinquished the careless way, meaning having relinquished, uh, let go of attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasurable, so having relinquished the careless way, you should reflect carefully, meaning attending to their true nature, their true characteristics, attending with the careful attention as impermanent, as not-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. And then the Deva goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, and in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma, on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness and rapture and happiness as well. And then when you are suffused with gladness, you'll make an end to suffering. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And the last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who, after returning from alms rounds and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, 
this bhikkhu would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. (laughs) When the deva who lived in the same thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. And so, out of compassion and wishing to stir up uh, an urgency for the monk to practice with more diligence, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. (laughs) While the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one who of such rough behavior, why is this one not spoken to? And the deva responds to the bhikkhu. When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to that one. But it is to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil, appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds with, when I first read this, I was very surprised by the deva's response. The deva says to the bhikkhu, we don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. (laughs) You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems that amongst those of us then and now, those who over 2,500 years ago were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and now, it seems that things haven't actually changed very much. <laughs> Our human predicament crosses time and crosses cultures. The teachings are timeless. The solutions that the Buddha offers to our karmic predicament is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were originally spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways and to varying degrees, 
we experience a release of energy and courage that helps the development and the blossoming of faith and confidence. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what, for some of you, might be a sense of timidity or maybe some degree of hesitation or maybe fear or doubt or maybe some degree of complacency. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to arouse Samvega. In speaking to a group of disciples in one sutta he says, rouse yourself, sit up. What good is there in sleeping? Meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. For those afflicted by Disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction. Struck by the arrow of craving, what sleep is there? Rouse yourselves, sit up, resolutely train yourselves to attain peace. And he goes on. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of confusion and anguish. And he says, negligence is a taint and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us to not close our eyes to this reality, we're also asked to engage in a moment to moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of this unsatisfactory round the first noble truth. Which, from this perspective, we could say is a gift. A gift that confirms some of our most sensitive and direct experiences of things. 
And then from this gift of the first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not out there, not coming from some outside experience or some outside being, but it's coming from in here, meaning in here in the craving and clinging and fear that's present in our own mind and heart. And then the Buddha, in his great confidence, coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example, confirms that there's an end to suffering, that there's a very available release from the cycle. And he offers us a way to that release by developing particular, beautiful, and clear qualities of mind, particular, beautiful, and clear qualities of heart. Moral, ethical responsibility, sila, concentration, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, balanced energy, joy, happiness, tranquility, equanimity, loving-kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and capacities really sprouting out of the original energy of spiritual urgency that led us at one point to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a practical solution. A solution that's within the power of every human being. A solution that many, many of you here, probably all of you here, have begun to have a growing faith in. Possibly in part through reading and studying the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really, most importantly, that you've come to know out of your own direct experience through your own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates Sambhaga and is also the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, and as it deepens, for many of us, it, in a sense, is what gives us the energy to live. The last story that I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a somewhat unlikely one. (laughs) It's from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard, a story that I... uh, found to be very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it um, many years ago. And it continues to move me every single time I read it. So these, uh, I'd like to share a few excerpts from 
a chapter from Annie Dillard's book called Living uh, Like Weasels, or the book is called Teaching a Stone to Talk, and this is from the chapter Living Like Weasels. Last week, I startled a weasel who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one be wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth. And then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into silence as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It filled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. That was only last week, and I already don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing, and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data, and my spirit with pleading but he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds, and he was in mine. Brains are private places muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels. Open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast, where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked, and ingested directly like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, even of silence, by choice. 
The thing is to stock your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft, even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasel's open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In light of Samvega, It feels important now to share some of the Buddha's last words just before his death. Words offered to his monastic and lay disciples to instill a sense of samvega in them. To exhort them to keep going on the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from a Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta. And I found this to be uh, quite inspiring, this particular version. O bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or not moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I am about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this evening's talk, we come back around to our opening questions. 
as the poet Mary Oliver poses in her own way in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.